0: Welcome to New Books in Language. Today I'm talking to Stephen Crane about his book The Emergence of Meaning, in which he lays out the theoretical and experimental case for logical nativism, the idea that aspects of the logical system are innately given. In this interview we discuss the relation of this idea to Chomsky's concept of innateness in universal grammar, and we explore the relevance of cross-linguistic findings to these claims of universality. We also discuss the implications of these results for studies of language impairments cross-linguistically. I'm pleased to welcome Professor Stephen Crane to talk about his new book, The Emergence of Meaning, in which he offers a theoretical and experimental perspective on the nature of human logical competencies. Stephen, how did this book come
1: about? Well, I had been working on Noam Chomsky's theory of universal grammar for many years, and I was focusing on children's acquisition of syntax. I wrote an article in 1990 called Language Acquisition in the Absence of Experience. And it was a sort of a summary of all the work that I had been doing with my colleagues and students up to that point on the acquisition of syntax. And it was an article that tried to make the point that children knew a lot more than they could have learned based on their experience. So in some sense, it was a defense of Chomsky's nativist position. Well, after that, I, I felt like I needed to move in a new direction, and I started to think about in my earlier career, where I had studied logic at UCLA in the United States, and I had a philosophy background. And so I, I, I thought, well, I want to see if the same sorts of arguments that we made for the acquisition of syntax might also be made for the acquisition of logical reasoning in children. And when I was a student at UCLA, um, I studied with Richard Montague, among others, and he taught us how to translate English into uh, formal logic, first order logic. And he also taught us how to translate logical formulas into English sentences. And so I, I took that approach in this book of trying to see whether we couldn't Um, make an argument that a lot of what children knew about logic was embedded in their language, and that a lot of it would be developed in children in the absence of experience. So it was really a a combination of the influence of Noam Chomsky and the influence of logicians on my thinking. I wanted to bring the two strands of my thinking together, so I formulated this book. I had been working with a number of Uh, colleagues and students on some of these logical um, words like disjunction, or in English, ka in Japanese, huoja in Mandarin Chinese. I'd been working on them but I hadn't really put it all together. Uh, A friend of mine who's uh, recently departed, Roger Wales, encouraged me to put all of this together in a single book and um, I took him up on that and this is sort of the, uh, the result of, of his inspiration as well. As you say, the main thrust of uh,
0: the argument that you put forward in the book is to defend this idea of logical nativism. Um, could you tell us a little about how that relates to the, or how you see that relating to the concept of nativism in grammar?
1: Yes. Well, another, another question that always comes up when I give talks is, what is the relationship between language and logic? Is there more to language than just logical reasoning? Does does language enable us to reason logically? And what I thought was I would like to see whether the same sorts of arguments that have been made about grammar, about syntax in particular, couldn't be extended to logical reasoning. The relationship is, is still a little bit unclear to me, I do believe that logic is the basis of of human language and that all human languages share or draw upon a common core of logical concepts, that the grammar itself is what enables us to put those logical concepts together. So there's an intimate relationship between the grammar, which is a recursive device that enables us to generate new sentences and understand sentences that we've never experienced before, and our ability to reason logically. So they're intimately intertwined, in my own view, and the same sorts of arguments for syntactic nativism can, in fact, be extended to logical nativism, which is what I attempt to do in the book. Yes,
0: one aspect I, I was quite interested in, just from a, from a theoretical perspective, is that if, from a traditional Chomskyian point of view, we've often heard about the idea of innately given capabilities that are specific to language, and various theories, of course, posit things that are, that are more or less necessarily specific. Do you see the um, the kinds of abilities that you propose in uh, under the rubric of logical nativism being something that's specific to language, or rather something that can be observed through the prism of language, but which is maybe more general to cognition?
1: That's a very important question, and... And I have a particular perspective on the question, but of course um, it's an empirical question and I could be wrong on it. But I do believe, in fact, that some of these logical abilities that I describe in the book are specific to language and are not just the consequences of a, a rational being. So at one point in the book, I consider this in some detail, whether or not, these principles of logic are just principles of rationality, such that if you had a very intelligent um, chimpanzee, would they, you know, because they would be rational, would they develop this sort of logical reasoning system that humans have developed or have evolved in humans um, and that are described as I go through the book for two languages, Mandarin, Chinese and English. And I've reached the conclusion, I tried to make the arguments in the book, but as I say, these are just arguments and, and this is an empirical question and very important empirical question. I try to make the argument that if a, a chimpanzee is really smart and learns to sign, they might not learn the same logical principles that humans, that have evolved in humans on the basis of having a language faculty. So my own view is that Logical reasoning in these basic logical concepts and the ability to put them together is specific to language and doesn't follow from general cognitive principles. There's this observation that it's, that it's in some sense curious that
0: logic works in reality. It's Arguably it's curious that mathematics works in reality as well as just being an axiomatic system that makes sense. Um, it's presumably highly adaptive to have a predisposition to be able to acquire Logical deductions. Um, I wondered whether you felt it was in some sense easier to make a direct case for the development of logic than it is necessarily to make the case on evolutionary grounds for the development of the kind of complex linguistic abilities that have
1: been posited in various different um, incarnations of UG. It's difficult for me to answer that question. I tend to avoid questions of evolution because. We know so little about how language evolved, and it's so controversial. So Chomsky's own position is that language evolved in a single mutation about 100,000 years ago, perhaps double that, but still very recently. If if that's true, and it didn't evolve slowly over time, it evolved in a single um, mutation in in a you in know group of people, a tribe, if you will. That were living at the time in East Africa and then and then spread throughout the world. Then um, there can't be um, a sort of separation of well, it, you know, it makes sense for logic to have evolved in a single mutation, but it does, makes less sense for grammar to evolve in a single mutation. As you say, uh, if grammar and logic are intimately intertwined, as I believe they are, then uh, it's hard to say that um, the grammatical principles are, are 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 less likely to have evolved than the logical principles. So that's a difficult question. It might be an easier question if um, Chomsky's wrong and if language evolved slowly over time. But if he's right, then it will be hard to make the case that it was uh, sort of more advantageous to the species to develop logic than it would be to develop grammatical principles. If you think about Chomsky's recent minimalist program where the human language faculty evolves in a way that is optimal for what language is, um, is used for, it's used to take meanings and then to externalize those meanings using sign or using our vocal cords, so producing words into sentences. If you take that perspective, that it's an optimal system, then, of course, uh, logic is an optimal system in some sense as well, in the sense that, you know, we can do so much with it. Now, again, maybe it didn't evolve. Either system didn't evolve uh, on, for a particular function. But when it did evolve, we could put it to work. And it it uh, does accomplish a, a great deal, and it's able, and we are able to use it in order to both communicate and to perform um, deductive reasoning tasks. So this is a very deep and uh, tricky question, and, and I certainly am, am the you know one of the last people to uh, have written about this because I think it's it's really premature, and we don't have the accurate records to go back in time. To see how things evolve, whether they actually evolved in a single mutation or or more slowly, I tend to think that um, that Chomsky's position is is on the right track, but that's probably because you know he's he's someone that I admire greatly and uh, have been greatly influenced by. As you bring up minimalism, I mean, I guess I have the the sense that
0: uh, there's a trajectory in the theoretical literature in the, in the uh, views that uh, Chomsky, for example, is, has expressed over the years uh, towards a narrower um, faculty of language, a narrower UG, and in some sense, claim, um, claims for the constituents of UG that are not quite so, don't appear to be quite so intimately tied to language as we kind of analyze it as linguists. Um, and in that sense, I've wondered whether you feel there's a, there's a convergence between that line of thinking and a view that uh, gives logic. This, this somewhat abstract system quite a um, prominent place in the set of linguistically relevant abilities.
1: I do think that again, it's not something we're speculating on uh, relationships between logic and language that that we can't actually prove. But if one wants to speculate about it, I would suggest that the basic uh, combinatorics of human language, are just the thing that would be used to combine logical uh, operators and to formulate, uh, ex- you know, expanded logical sentences and to perform logical tasks. So we have to have some sort of combinatory operators, operations like merge and so on, to uh, combine words together. And it may be that those uh, same basic operations, these core operations that are in the narrow syntax, are exactly what would be used to combine logical operators together and to uh, formulate more extensive um, logical reasoning formulas and so on. So I, I believe that there's there's no tension between the minimalist program and the idea of a narrow syntax that has these combinatorics and the idea that that these that the grammar the recursive grammar in the narrow syntax can be used to perform tasks that involve logical reasoning no indeed
0: um i'd like to take a step back if i may and ask uh, at various points in the book you Oppose the logically nativist position that you're espousing to views of logical competence that are, in some sense, emergentist. Could you characterize the sort of fundamental differences between the view that you're espousing and the view which says that logical competence can, can be learned from experience?
1: Well, I think that if, it, if logical competence could be learned from experience, then we have to have some kind of uh, learning mechanism or parsing mechanism that has the character that will enable it to put, it, put experience to work in exactly the way that it works in human languages. In the book, what I do in order to show that experience is not directly relevant, or at least to argue that it might not be directly relevant, is to show that the same principles arise in two historically unrelated languages. Clearly, the experience of uh, children in Mand- who speak Mandarin Chinese in Beijing and the experiences of children raised in Sydney, Australia, or in Munich, Germany, will be quite different. So if it turns out that the same principles are acquired, then either these learning mechanisms are the same and are, you know, ideally suited to taking various experiences and putting them together in the same way. Or there is a specific contingent language faculty that does this for the child. And I think it just the, um, the weight of the evidence suggests that, you know, since no one has proposed such learning mechanisms or a parser that can put things together in Mandarin Chinese and in German and in English, in exactly the right way to give these um, abilities to children to reason logically, then the burden of proof is on the uh, experience-based person to argue that there are such learning mechanisms. In the absence of any um, coherent argument that there are such learning mechanisms, I think uh, it makes sense to, at least initially, to adopt the idea that maybe these mechanisms are specific to the human species and that's why when we have different experiences, we nevertheless develop the same uh systems for reasoning logically. Do you feel that it's something that
0: the, if you like, the emergentist position has has neglected because it's it's too complicated or they don't have a story about it? Or do you feel it's something that is has attracted insufficient attention generally because people don't realize that the uh that there's there's something to explain here?
1: I do think that The emergentists and the constructivists and so on have ignored cross-linguistic generalizations. And what I try to to show in the book that these cross-linguistic generalizations include a lot about first-order logic. So I've tried to extend the sort of database that needs to be explained and try to pose these as problems for alternative approaches, for the non-nativist approaches. So, I agree with you that, um, or maybe it's not your position, but it's a position that, um, you've characterized that, that, um, a lot of emergentist proposals and non nativist proposals have simply ignored a lot of the basic cross linguistic work. And it is really incumbent on them to take some of these arguments seriously because they're very powerful arguments. If, if, children learning Mandarin Chinese and children learning German and children learning English are coming up with the same reaching the same conclusions on the basis of uh, very different linguistic structures, very different languages, very different, very varied uh, linguistic experiences, then uh, this is fodder for the mill of the logical nativist. And I would like to see, um, more attention being paid by emergentists and constructivists to cross-linguistic generalizations. At the moment, they're pretty much ignored. Um, they do, um, gesture towards certain sort of biological common properties. And that goes, that harks back again to the idea that any rational creature would, would develop these things. And so I've taken that on in a sort of separate, as a separate argument. But my basic contention is that of these cross-linguistic, you know, the fact that logical reasoning is pretty much the same for a lot of different structures in Mandarin Chinese and in English, despite the variation in experience for children, is something that needs to be taken very seriously. And I, I would suggest that it's been largely ignored by the emergentists and it's really important, but to the extent that lots and lots of historically unrelated languages behave in the same way, it's going to be difficult to to write a parser or to come up with a learning mechanism that has the character that will enable it to handle the fact that languages often reach the same conclusions about logical uh, deductions, despite all the uh, differences that that appear on the surface of of languages all the the word order differences and the um, the the structural differences like in uh, case marking and in agreement and tense you know some languages like english and german have extent you know full full embodied tense and agreement systems whereas languages like mandarin chinese lack tense and agreement altogether and have a, a well developed aspectual system so despite all of these differences that children are experiencing when they're learning their language the fact that children reach the same conclusions about how logical words operate what their basic meanings are and how they combine uh, would suggest that there's a specialized uh, mechanism for this and it's not just a fact that emerges in different human languages or so it seems to me
0: yeah. Uh, a particular focus of, of the work that you present in this book is is the, your work on child language acquisition, also cross-linguistically. You've been instrumental in obtaining the, the data that bear upon these theories about innate knowledge. Um, would it be fair to say that acquisition is maybe the crucial test bed for the competing theories, in as much as we have competing theories?
1: Yes, I think it's one of the um, critical test beds. It's because when you study child language, children's experience has been compressed so the learning problem is massive for children how could they develop these abilities to reason logically by the age of three or four when they've had so little experience why is it that children learning different languages another question why is it that children learning different languages reach the same conclusions even though the languages are different and their experiences different um, and why do children differ in their uh, reasoning abilities from adults sometimes sometimes adults have different uh, logical reasoning um, abilities than children do it's different on the surface of course I argue that basically both children and adults are using the same mechanisms but there are things that characterize different languages that are superimposed on logical reasoning and make it look like adults are speaking illogically when children are speaking logically or vice versa. In any event, the differences between children's use of logical words and adult uses of logical words does show that children are not learning their uh, logical words, the meanings of words, or how to combine them on the basis of their experience, or they're not just watching adults use these logical words and then copying them, trying to uh, mimic what adults do. You have an interesting example
0: um, on the acquisition of disjunction, acquisition of the term or in English, where we talk about it in terms of the the problem of of no negative evidence, in as much as there's an ambiguity in the the interpretation of or. Could you tell us more about that?
1: I think the interesting finding is that when you look at adult languages, they look quite different. So it looks like adults are interpreting sentences with uh, or differently across languages. So let me give you an example. In English, if I say, Ted didn't order sushi or pasta for lunch, then that means he didn't order either one. He didn't order sushi for lunch, and he didn't order pasta for lunch. But if we translate that sentence into... Russian or into Mandarin Chinese or into Japanese, it doesn't have the same meaning. So in Mandarin Chinese, Ted didn't order sushi or pasta for lunch will mean it's sushi that Ted didn't order or it's pasta that Ted didn't order. So he might not have ordered one of them and he, and he could have ordered uh, the other one. Quite different meaning for adult speakers when they use or in a negative statement. But when we look at children, children all come up with the same uh, hypothesis. They all reach the conclusion that when you say Ted didn't order sushi or pasta for lunch, that it means what it means for English-speaking adults. Ted didn't order sushi and pasta, and he didn't order pasta, so he didn't order either either of those dishes. Mandarin-speaking children come up with the English-speaking hypothesis, and they don't. Sp- they don't come up with a hypothesis or they don't come up with the interpretation that's used by Mandarin-speaking adults. Now, that doesn't mean that English is, uh, you know, more logical and that all children start out being uh, logical and learning English because I have exactly um, the opposite conclusion about negative sentences with and. So negative sentences with and, I argue, that English-speaking children initially... Start off speaking Mandarin Chinese in interpreting negative sentences with an. so there's no um more logical language. One language is not more logical than the other, and I don't want this book to be used by people uh, to argue that you know English or Mandarin Chinese are are basic are more logical. The conclusion that I've reached is just the opposite: that all languages uh, draw upon the same logical structures and they combine them in exactly the same way. Now, there will be differences, as we've just seen. There will be differences between Mandarin-speaking children and Mandarin-speaking adults. But those differences are to be expected when we're dealing with logical operators, because logical operators, when they combine, can combine in different scope relations. So one of the main arguments that I make in the book is that just these simple scope differences are enough to account for the differences across human languages. The scope differences are so- something that are independently motivated. We need them anyway just to understand simple sentences. Like if I, go to Bo- I went to Boston, uh, Logan Airport one time, and I was taking my pet. I was trying to deliver my pet from the United States to Australia when we moved here and I noticed a sign that said all airplanes do not carry pets well that has two logical operators all and not and all airplanes do not carry pets is ambiguous because it has two logical operators so it could mean that no airplane carries pets all airplanes do not carry pets could mean that none of them do or it could mean that not all airplanes carry pets but some of them do and of course that's the intended interpretation um, but there are two interpretations and uh this is what happens typically when you have two logical operators. What I argue in the book is that this is exactly what happens in cases of disjunction, the or, not or Ted didn't order sushi or pasta. Sometimes in human languages the or is interpreted within the scope of negation, and that gives you gives rise to the neither interpretation. Ted ordered neither sushi nor pasta, but on occasion in Mandarin and in uh, Russian and in lots of the world's languages, Japanese, for instance, or the word or, ka in Japanese or huoja in Mandarin Chinese, that's the word that takes widest scope. And you get the interpretation that would, that would uh, result in a sort of cleft structure in English. It's sushi or pasta that Ted didn't order for lunch. So this cleft structure in English where we, where we pronounce the disjunction first, it's sushi or pasta that Ted didn't order. That's how Mandarin works and that's how Japanese works. On the surface, it looks the same as in English where the or is on the surface appears, you know, inside the scope of negation. But at the level of interpretation, it looks as though Mandarin and Japanese and Russian and other languages aren't are interpreting it as though the word for disjunction, or in English, is is uh, take scope over the word for negation. So by invoking this idea of scope, it may not be right, but it's the idea that I've pushed in the book. We can explain the cross-linguistic differences, and again, this is a mechanism that we need independently. So it's not like I've advanced uh, some uh, peculiar or idiosyncratic mechanism to explain cross-linguistic differences. I'm trying to explain cross-linguistic differences using the the necessary tools that we already have at our disposal. Yeah,
0: um, in particular, you're offering in in Chapter 4 a parametric account of scope, in which which you posit that parameters govern separately, the scopal relation between negation and disjunction, and that between negation and conjunction. Um, these are potential parameters in something like a principles and parameters sense. Is, is that correct?
1: That's right. L- let me explain a little bit more about parameters. I'm using parameters very loosely in chapter four. It doesn't mean that these parameters are um, basically semantic parameters. It could be that they're the semantic reflex of a syntactic parameter. It could be that there's something about the syntax of Mandarin Chinese that causes disjunction to be interpreted outside the scope of negation. And it could be that there's something different about the syntax of English that causes disjunction to be interpreted within the scope of negation. So these cross-linguistic differences could result from syntactic parameters, and yet we see The interpretive consequences of these are what I'm trying to bring out. So as a consequence of whatever the parameter is, whatever the mechanism is, it turns out that the interpretation of disjunction in negative sentences is different in Mandarin Chinese as compared to English. So it is a parameter, um, no doubt, but I haven't spelled out exactly what the nature of the parameter is. I've just used the word parameter Um, Very generally to mean there's cross linguistic variation and the variation, whatever its uh, origin, it it results in interpretive differences. So it's semantic in some sense, but it's semantic. It could be just a semantic reflex. So I'm not really committed to there being semantic parameters. Uh, It could be that these parameters fit very nicely within the principles and parameters framework that's been developed by uh, Noam Chomsky and uh, lots and lots of uh, people in the generative tradition in recent years. So the answer, the simple answer is, yes, you're right. I do see this as falling within these proposals, as falling within the principles and parameters framework. But the point of my work that I report in the book is not to go into the details of what the parameter consists in, but rather what its um, consequences are for the interpretation of sentences in different human languages.
0: Sure. So so one way of interpreting the concept of parameters here would be to say that uh, we're innately disposed, possibly mediated by some other factors, to assign scope consistently to disjunction over negation or vice versa in a given language. That's right. In the uh, experimental chapters of the book, as you say, you make comparisons in particular between findings from English and those from Mandarin. In particular, those similarities which you argue can be uh, adduced as support for nativism. Was there a particular reason why you focus on these two
1: languages? Just two reasons. First, they're historically unrelated. So if the same um logical properties emerge or are characterized in these two languages then that would be a strong argument for logical nativism because of their um they're typologically distinct and I think more and more research will uh confirm that typologically distinct languages can adopt the same uh, logical mechanisms but the second reason is that when we move to Australia uh, we're closer to China, and a lot of students from China have applied to um, do their research, their PhD research with me. And so I've naturally, you know, I I do write some papers alone, and I wrote this book alone, but often when I write or work on a on a problem, I often work on it with a particular student or colleague, and hopefully my students become my colleagues, and we continue to work together on these, in in these areas and on these interesting puzzles. So I tend to um, focus on things that um, my students and my colleagues are interested in, not just what uh, I'm interested in. When I came to Australia, I didn't have any students, No no students from the United States came with me. So I had a little bit of time to think myself, and I think that this book sort of represents a lot of the thinking that I did when before I had students, but as soon as I had students, I could put my, my, what I was thinking about into operation. I began to do studies on Mandarin Chinese. I found it very interesting and I spend a lot of time in China. In fact, I'm the director of a, of a center in Beijing and I spend a lot of time uh, thinking about Mandarin Chinese and as well as English and those are just the languages that i have available to me if i was in in germany then i would be uh, working on the relationship between german and english i'm sure and my my students would um be be posing problems and i would be helping them try to solve those problems they would be different problems so some of it's just a matter of circumstance and accident of where i relocated and some of it is because i wanted to look at languages that are typologically distinct in order to make the logical nativist argument. Of um, course. A point you bring up uh, is that there are there are also
0: pragmatic factors that bear upon the the way in which particularly logical operators interact with other logical operators, for example disjunction and conjunction interacting with negation. Um, is that a similar story in Mandarin, or does the sort of landscape of possible expressions lead to different pragmatic uh, consequences, or or do we just not really know at this stage?
1: It's interesting that you raise this question because it's something that's on my mind quite a lot. It seems that some of these um, pragmatic principles operate slightly differently uh, across languages. I probably would not have expected that to be the case. I would have probably expected these pragmatic principles these conversational principles to be universal as well. But, you know, uh, what one expects and how how life turns out are often quite different. So let me give you just one example. And um, it's it's something that I I think shows you the differences. I won't go into the details of the pragmatic principles, but I'll give you the example. Anyway, if I say to you, um, every child brought a dog or a cat to the park, Every child brought a dog or a cat to the park. If you're a speaker of German or a speaker of English, I believe you think that at least some children brought dogs and some children brought cats. It's not that that means every child brought a dog to the park or every child brought a cat to the park, so they all brought the same thing to the park. For English speakers, and I think this is probably true of German speakers, Every dog. Every child brought a dog or a cat. There must be at least one dog, or maybe many more, or at least one and at least one cat, and maybe many more. But when you translate that sentence into Mandarin Chinese, it really does mean every child brought the same thing. They either all brought a dog or they all brought a cat. And it turns out that that interpretation is also uh, the interpretation that Italian adults assign to the sentences. Now, there's supposed to be, in English, a pragmatic uh, account of why we require some children at least to bring uh, one pet or the, and, and other children to bring the other. So at least one cat and one dog uh, should be brought to the park for English speakers and, I believe, for German speakers. But whatever that pragmatic principle is, it doesn't seem to be uh, operative in Italian or in Mandarin Chinese. And that's quite a puzzle, because if these principles of pragmatics are uh, universal, you wouldn't expect that. So there are nuances even in these pragmatic principles. Now I don't study this in detail in, in the book, but it is interesting that you raise this question, because uh, I do believe that, the, that sentences with logical operators, even when they're influenced by pragmatics, can be uh, interpreted quite, quite differently in different languages. Now, the important, another important point to add is that English speaking children we found in 1994 um, in some research that I did. I found that English speaking children had the interpretation that I later discovered was characteristic of Mandarin, Chinese and Italian. So I call them egalitarian children. So I found some English speaking children who preferred to interpret every child brought a dog or a cat to the park. As meaning they all brought dogs or they all brought cats, and it couldn't, it wouldn't be true if some brought dogs and some brought cats. I found that that was true of English speaking children as well as uh, Mandarin speaking adults and Italian speaking adults. So here again, we have an example of where English speaking children look as though they're speaking a different language or have a different pragmatic. Um, operating principle, they're not learning their interpretation of this sentence based on English-speaking adults, because English-speaking adults don't have that interpretation. So there are morals here, and they support logical nativism and not the experience-based approach. I guess this also goes to some extent
0: to the the question of what extent we can achieve translation equivalence. Because I suppose a, a strong logical nativist position would be that a la Montague, we really ought to be able to translate sentences, at least on the, in a way that's semantically consistent, but nevertheless the pragmatics may be different. Uh, presumably your view would be that we need to appeal to pragmatics to explain the differences, and there is some sense of core meaning that's being maintained or can be
1: maintained across translation. Is that is that fair? Uh. It's it's fair as far as it goes, but it's not just pragmatic differences because I think there are um, differences in focus. There are differences in you know positive polarity item polarity sensitivity. Um, there uh, in fact there are different there are particular linguistic structures that are possible in different human languages. So there are differences in the in the syntactic domain as well. So, the differences across languages are not merely in the pragmatic domain, but they extend to phonology and they extend to syntax as well. But once we understand what those differences are, we can um, we can neutralize them. We can try to show that if we take those if we can set those differences aside, then there will be uh, common core uh, properties that are characteristic of all human languages. So I tried to do that in um, the chapter on uh, focus operators, for instance. So I show that, you know, in English, the focus operator only, if you say only John ate rice or beans, then that means John ate rice or beans, but nobody else ate either one. So nobody else ate rice and nobody else ate beans. Everybody else who's being contrasted with John uh, didn't eat rice and they didn't eat beans. Well, when focus operators, uh, when the, when disjunction appears in the scope of a focus operator, then in all human languages, then they are interpreted, uh, disjunction is interpreted in the same way. So we can use these cross-linguistic differences to show, to reveal the common properties of human languages. So the cross-linguistic differences could give rise to, to different interpretations, but they can also be used to neutralize those different interpretations again this would be evidence that uh, human languages are drawing on the same uh, basic you know parts list of uh, logical concepts and combining them in in the same ways um, subject you know modulo these these differences which could be in the pragmatic system could be in the phonological system and they also could be in the syntactic system
0: it certainly gives us a, an impression of how complex uh, everything becomes when all these all these systems are apparently interacting in a very meaningful way. What do you see as the most important research directions in this particular field going forward?
1: What I'd like to see is more cross-linguistic research. I'd like to see more work in, uh, in typologically distinct languages. Obviously, the predictions of this nativist uh, theory, this logical nativist proposal, are that we're going to see even even typologically distinct languages like, like Turkish and uh, Mandarin Chinese l- look the same as long as we can investigate them in detail and as long as we're aware of these uh, phonological, syntactic and pragmatic differences. In fact, I try to neutralize the pragmatic differences as much as I can. and That's why I focus on uh, so-called downward entailing linguistic environments. I'm trying to not give rise, not allow the sentences to give rise to certain pragmatic implicatures, if you will. So I'm I'm actually trying to show the cases where um, the pragmatic differences are have been eliminated or at least controlled for. But I think my work will be vindicated or, or disconfirmed. Um, as we learn as we try to apply this to more and more uh, languages, because languages have all of these complex properties that you that you mentioned. And it's, you know, it's amazing how languages can differ. And, of course, the proposals that I make are, are tentative and they need to be elaborated. They're not it's not going to turn out to be exactly true that every human language will differ in only the ways that English and Mandarin differ and so it won't be true that it'll be easy to show that these um, logical universals hold in uh, you know quite distinct languages like Basque or or Turkish or uh, you know Navajo or Mohawk or some or, or lang- aboriginal languages of Australia uh, we're going to see cross-linguistic differences but the point is that if we can understand these cross-linguistic differences and we can try to deal with them, to neutralize them, then we're going to see the core properties emerge again and again in different human languages. What do you see as the the ultimate
0: goal of the theory? I'm, I'm just I'm, I'm curious because we talked a little earlier about how the emergentist approaches are uh, may may be inadequate and don't seem to spell out very full or coherent theories, but At the same time, my impression is that they're striving for a level of granularity of explanation, ultimately, which is not necessarily considered desirable or possible within linguistics in a a generative framework. I wonder where you you would draw the line. How, how, How far down can we
1: go? It's important to point out that no logical nativist or no nativist would claim that children don't use experience as the basis uh, of the foundation of their language after all you know children raised in uh, Sydney Australia are are learning English and children raised in Beijing are learning Mandarin Chinese Um, but what we are attempting to do is to show the sort of common properties now there is no proof that in the future the emergentists and the constructivists won't come up with a theory that is a viable contender that can actually explain a lot of the same phenomena that's explained within the generative tradition by the kinds of mechanisms that are described by, in Noam Chomsky's work or in, or, in, or presented in, in the book or described by work by Gennaro Kirkia and others uh, in formal semantics. We can't prove that, um, that our approach is better, but what we can do is to show how um, successful this approach is in describing, in coming up with cross-linguistic generalizations. And so I think that what I see in the future is that it's important to continue this line of work, as I said before, to study more and more languages and to come to grips with the common properties and not just the differences. Within the area of linguistic typology there's a, there's a great sort of debate going on about whether lang- how much languages can differ. And we know that they do differ. I mean, you you know, you and I both speak English, but our dialects are quite distinct and my dialect is quite distinct from my wife's dialect because she's from from New Zealand. But if we try to uh look at in depth at the common properties and what what characterizes all human languages, then I think it's going to Uh, drive a a further wedge between the emergentist and the constructivist approach and this nativist approach and that's really my goal is to is to see which one is closer to the truth we can um, and i think in where the differences will be greatest is in the ability of the people who believe in universal grammar to actually describe what happens in in typologically distinct languages and to the extent that the emergentists and the experience-based approaches uh, fail to even come to grips with um, historically unrelated languages try to you know fail to take take these linguistic generalizations to heart and try to explain them using the mechanisms that they're proposing then then they'll fall behind so i think that if the challenge is to see which which particular theoretical perspective is closer to the truth then I'm going to put my money on um, cross-linguistic research and the common properties as showing that the nativist approach is is superior is going to be closer to the truth ultimately but that said I hope you you know you take took my words to heart that I understand that once we start looking at at different languages you know the it's not going to be as simple as I have have made it appear I, as I might have made it appear to be in the book, where we can just look at all languages and we can easily see the common properties emerge if we just do some clever experiments. Sure.
0: No, I, th- I think nobody is under any illusions as to how complicated everything will turn out to be when we when we get to grips with it. Yeah. Um, we're, we're near the end of a lot of time, so I'd like to conclude if I may by asking: uh, We've talked about some of the priorities for this line of research. What are your own personal future research plans?
1: Well, as I said before, I, I sort of I look at myself as a as a puzzle solver. So I, there are lots and lots of uh, puzzles out there. You know, when someone is trying to understand how Mandarin Chinese works or how English works, then I think we can do experiments with children that that control for certain factors. And so children are, are a, a good way to investigate and to sort of neutralize the pragmatics and the phonological properties and just hone in on the differences that have to do with logical reasoning and so on. So I do want to continue to work with children. But recently I've become interested in working with children who have language disorders as well. So um, we have a project at our, uh, at our center on specific language impairment. And specific language impairment is typically marked clinically in Indo-European languages by um, a failure to um, assign tense or agreement. So one thing that I'm interested in is, well, what happens in languages like Mandarin Chinese where tense and agreement are not are not marked, where there's a, a detailed, articulated aspectual system but you actually don't mark past tense and um, present tense and so on. You know, it's clear that there are many children in who speak Mandarin Chinese who have specific language impairment, and yet, of course, they're not going to have the same clinical markers—the failures to deal with or difficulties in dealing, assigning tense and agreement to sentences. So, one thing that I'm I want to work on in the next few years is to find out what characterizes specific language impairment in languages like Mandarin Chinese. Um, Why this is interesting for me is because if there is a notion of specific language impairment, and if it's characterized differently in Indo-European languages and in East Asian languages, then maybe we can find out really what specific language impairment is ultimately, what its cause is. It has to be at a level of abstraction that's higher than just aspect or tense and agreement. So we can learn more about um, human languages by studying these language disorders. But again, in order to study even language disorders, I think the real payoff for me is to study um, typologically distinct languages and see how languages, language disorders unfold in different kinds of languages. Then when we have our hypotheses, we'll be having we'll be positing uh, structures and deficits at a far more abstract level than just um, the surface manifestations of these uh, language impairments. So I want to work on more on Mandarin, Chinese and English and other languages. Um, Whatever my students want to work on, then I want to work on that as well. But I also would like to work more on language disorders and look at cross-linguistic disorders, how they play out in different languages. Well, I very much agree. It's a fascinating project,
0: and I uh, look forward to reading more about the, uh, about the outcomes of that in years to come. And now, let me say, Stephen Crane, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. I've been talking to Stephen Crane about his book, The Emergence of Meaning. This is Chris Cummins from New Books in Language, saying thank you for listening.